From Equality Arizona, you're listening to the Arizona Equals Conversation. I'm Gene Woodbury. I'm the Interim Executive Director of Equality Arizona, and I've been hosting this podcast for a few months now. As I step into this new leadership role, it's really rewarding to be able to talk to queer people from across the state who are already involved in community leadership. My guest today, Zara, is one of the first people I wanted to talk to when I actually started this podcast earlier this year. And fortunately, we were able to schedule something just recently. So I'm really excited to release this interview. It was really fascinating to hear about their path through advocacy from their initial activism in the Occupy movement all the way to what they're doing today with Black Lives Matter Phoenix Metro. I didn't get involved with the Occupy Wall Street movement at the time, but I think it's clear that it's a really defining moment for not just a lot of people's political journeys, but the way politics works today and the potential that exists in progressive organizing even now. There's some really unique things about that moment in time, and I really appreciated getting to hear from someone who was there and was really involved in it. That's certainly not the biggest part of their story, but it's something that really stood out to me, and I think that there's a good chance you'll find something like that in the interview that can really resonate for you in terms of how you've thought about politics, or that might open you up to maybe some new ways of thinking about politics and thinking about organizing so really just a fascinating conversation. I don't want to spend too much time in the intro here, but that being said, today is the 2nd of November. If you're listening to this when it comes out, it's the 2nd of November. And that means there's less than a week left at this point until the midterm elections. Early voting continues through Friday, and then the polls will be open for most of the day on election day. So make sure to get out and vote when you're able, and make sure to make a plan so that you will be able to vote. If you're looking for any more information about that or about what's on your ballot, just visit our voter guide online at eqaz.vote. Yeah, that's the URL. All right, let's start the interview. My name is Sarah. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I am an organizer, co-director, and co-founder of Black Lives Matter Phoenix Metro, and uh, happy to talk to you all today. Cool. Thanks for your time. I think it's always interesting to talk with someone who I don't know and haven't met, but I'm familiar with your work. I've heard people talk about your work, and so it's, it's an interesting starting point, I think, for <laughs> me. Um, I, I feel like You've gotten caught up in like a couple controversies. People have feelings about you without actually knowing you. <laughs> what is that experience like? Um, yeah, it kind of sucks, but I guess it's <laughs> been a blessing and just like, really, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I don't care what people think. It's like, do you really, what about when they're dragging your name through the mud and you don't even know them? <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, it's been kind of just like, you know, uh, exercise in uh, releasing um expectation and and just yeah. like really realizing you know like i am who i am and you can either you know like the people 
who who need to be in your life will understand where you're coming from, and the people who don't, you shouldn't have to explain yourself to. Yeah, so, yeah. I like that. What were some of the expectations you had before that you had to let go of? Um, it's like wanting to be understood, mm. wanting to, for my perspective to be heard. Yeah. Um, but then like also coming to um an understanding. Um, there's a quote. I'm I'm not gonna remember who who uh, said it, unfortunately, but um, that talks about, like, you know, um, don't don't uh, spend your time um, trying to be understood by people who perpetually uh, seek to misunderstand you. Oh, yeah. And I feel that uh, a lot. And so for me, it was like, Okay, um, instead of, like, feeling like, you know, um, as a black queer person, um, multiple, like, various identities, I feel like I've oftentimes felt um, misunderstood and not heard. And so, for me, that sometimes I'll feel like, oh, uh, I want to... I want to make sure they understood, like, where I'm coming from or see my perspective. But now I've kind of come to an understanding that, you know, like, this world wasn't built for me and that there are people who are going to misunderstand me as soon as they hear my pronouns or as soon as they see the color of my skin. And so instead of, like, being trying to get everyone on your side or trying to speak to everyone, it's just, like, being confident in who you are and not, like, um, needing... Uh, that validation from others, you know, it's a journey. <laughs> but uh, I think that can yeah. be kind of freeing. Like when you are trying to talk to people and get your message across, if you're not worrying about what they're thinking so much or how they're going to receive it, and you can just speak the message confidently, I feel like it can help a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to people who have very anti trans opinions just as part of my work Mm -hmm. and there's that distinction between people who like have these opinions and will listen and people who just are intentionally going to always misunderstand you do you feel like it's a helpful tool in your work like for the work itself and not just for yourself as a person to take that approach yeah i'd say so because i think that um I mean, we see it with the Democrats um, and their their spinelessness um, where, like, you know, they perpetually try to to work with the other side when, you know, the other side one is, is not interested in working with them. And and they also in trying to um, to be understood by someone who perpetually seeks to misunderstand you what we've seen in in politics how it shapes up is that you know we don't have a left and a right we have a far right and a central because (laughs) they want to um make the other side hear you but it's like uh with certain groups with certain people like um it's a waste of your time because the only way you are going to connect with them is is uh by compromising your values and i'm not saying that about everyone you know it takes discernment and seeing like who is actually curious about hearing and who has already made up their mind and is only seeking to speak to you or work with you to prove their point about their uh you know already um already made up mind and i feel like unfortunately a lot of people are just drifting into that 
category if they've already made up their mind. Yeah. Uh, do you conceive of your work as politics or is it just politics adjacent? How do you think about that? I mean, I think it depends on what we talk about mm -hmm. politics, right? Because yeah. on one hand, I um, intentionally don't engage in like electoral politics. Mm -hmm. um, I don't do um, work, you know, trying to get people elected because uh, from my viewpoint um it's really about the collective and so you know like while I do work on policy and policy can be written by a community and can be um while it may take you know uh you need your political allies and you need um, politicians on your side it's not putting all your faith into one person which I think is um my issue with a lot of electoral politics i mean we can just look at um even when um we got obama in office for the first time it was like oh we can all go home now <laughs> he's gonna fix america you know and in a lot of ways i feel like that um reduced um his power because we thought we had one and we all went home and and I'm, i feel like we're seeing this again when with biden in office where um you know people are like okay we won trump is gone but like kids are still in cages and so um i think that for me politics um is a lot more than politicians and it's a lot more than policy um for me being um being a black person and expressing joy is a political act. Um, we talk about all the time how black joy is part of the resistance. Um, being a black, queer, African person is a political identity, whether or not I want to be or not. And oh, yeah. so I think that... Um, I think that my work is politics, but um, it's really the politics of cultural change and societal shift, um, and that's the work that I'm, I'm most interested in um and I think you know um in it's in, in the same way you know like um trans people's identities are politicized it's like these are things that are thrust upon us and we can either attempt to ignore it but we're always going to have that um that um politicization in everything that we do and for me it's like well i'm gonna take this politicization of my identity and use it to to change society and you know i think um societal change work it's a lot harder to measure whereas um policy and politicians you're like did you get them in office or not did the bill pass or not you yeah. know it's very uh uh, there's no nuance to it, right? Yeah. Um, but I feel like there's a lot more nuance to to um, social change work. Like the first uh, the first activism I got involved in was actually uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement. Oh, wonderful! Like back in 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so um, both my sister and my mom were, you know, working class people in the unions. And because of their union involvement, that's kind of how I kind of um, begin to develop my class analysis and where I 
learned about like you know we are the 99 percent and that there's the one percent that's hoarding all this wealth and started to really um where i guess i developed my um anti-capitalist analysis and uh a lot of people criticized the occupy movement in a similar way to they criticized the black lives matter movement and there's a lot of overlap in the movements um where we intentionally didn't choose to have a messiah or a singular leader where it's leaderful, where we didn't have a singular demand, but we, you know, we're really talking about these cultural shifts. And a lot of people looked at Occupy and was like, a lot of people sat in parks and nothing happened, <laughs> and you guys should have had one demand and, and nothing changed. But for me, I felt like the Occupy movement was successful because it did have uh, basically pushed forth um the consciousness of capitalism and the late stage capitalism that we are in today and i think even a lot of you know what i see in, in gen z and a lot of young folks who, who have this analysis a lot of the words that they're saying is analysis that was developed during occupy Absolutely. probably way before they were even you know aware uh, or <laughs> you know, understanding and so for me that that is the cultural shift and you know uh we needed that occupy movement then to be aware we are today and i think the occupy movement inspired arab spring i think it inspired uh the black lives matter movement in the ways in which it was organized very decentralized there wasn't one group that spoke for the whole there wasn't one policy demand and i think that's a beautiful thing and so when we look at cultural change work i think that we also have to have more complexity about wins and losses such binary thinking and as a non-binary person it's like it's so much it's more you know it's more like an x and y scale it's you know like it's multi-dimensional yeah one thing i remember from occupy was the like human microphone and the consensus decision making and i think some things like that are also the legacy of Occupy that those kinds of techniques for organizing have have held on and, and hung around. Is that part of what you're talking about when you're talking about cultural change, like yeah. techniques? and? Yeah, techniques, new, new ways of looking at things and new ways of even doing things. Like, you know, like the, the people's mic is a great yeah. example where, like, there were so many times... Um, you know, from uh, BLM to Standing Rock, where I remember the people's mic helped um, get people out, help save people when, you know, police were coming to attack us or, or, or otherwise. So, you know, I think that, you know, when we look at oh, whether or not a movement won or not, I think that um, if there is a shift in consciousness, that that is a win. Yeah. So when you were involved in Occupy Wall Street, were you um, in a, one of the cities that was really active, or how, what was your engagement like? Yeah, I was in Seattle, okay. um, so there was, uh, at the um, community college, there was a huge um, occupation. I wasn't very much involved in that piece in, on the occupation. I was in community college, I think I was like 18, um, and uh, during that time, I just remember... Um, 
the fact that we took the Occupy movement and we used it to call out the um, practice happening at our university of them hiring only adjunct professors and not paying them enough. We took the practice and of Occupy and the 1% and we used that to push back. My first campaign was actually lobbying to reduce lunch prices in the cafeteria of oh, our nice. community college and and we won and it felt really good and I was like this is this is how change is made and you know um looking back it was like a really kind of small campaign but at the same time I'm glad that was my first campaign because we got to see like the power of social change even if it was on the scale of you know a few thousand people hyper local um yeah and so um, there was just like a lot that opened up because of the political moment that we were in, that we were able to change things. And, and so my involvement, a lot, I remember being out, um, protesting on the day student debt hit 1 trillion and now it's like way more than that. Um, <laughs> but you know, all of that I think shaped, uh, not just like who I am, but the way I organize. I mean, even the fact that I've never, I've never, um, had a bank, I only, I only bank with credit unions because, you know, coming in and seeing like the, uh, Wells Fargo and Chase who, you know, banks got bailed out, people got sold out. <laughs> I was wondering my chance. And yeah. like, it was like, nah, I don't want to bank with the banks. Like, And even now that influences my politics and even um, the way in which, like, you know, who, who will take money from or who will work with because, yeah, uh, we're fighting for black liberation, but um, because of, of what I've learned from, you know, the fight against capitalism and the 1%, um, we have to include it because... Because if we don't, then, uh, you know, um, everything is intersectional. Like during uh, the subprime mortgage loan crisis, black women lost the most amount of houses. And so, you know, um, it's important when you look at that, um, that you see, like, how all of these things are connected and why, like... um, a single analysis can't work like, you know, um, I, and why I critique things like black capitalism. And yes, I do want black people to be successful, but liberation isn't going to be black capitalism because I have an understanding that capitalism is, uh, requires an exploitation. So if we don't want to be nimbies and just like push it, like, Oh, we just want to, we just want to sit at the table like white people, you know, which is essentially, you know, the people like Kanye, then we we do have to include not just um, you know an anti-capitalist analysis, but also something else um, in our work in BLM. Um, Phoenix is like we also have to make sure that we realize while we uh, have oppression because we are black, we have privilege. And because we're American and um, for those of us to have American citizenship. And so what does that mean? And what for me, uh, oftentimes when the conversation around privilege, especially white people, often it's like, I have privilege. I have to feel guilty about oh, it. Right. <laughs> and it's like, no, you feeling guilty is only going to make yourself feel worse. And it's not, it doesn't help anyone at all. Like what we need is you to re- look at privilege as a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that, you know, we're trying to do is like, how do we use this responsibility having uh, American um, citizenship privilege uh how can we wield that in a way that supports our brothers and sisters in the global south in the motherland you know um and why we center uh as as an organization here in phoenix why we center um 
queer and femme folks, you know, with an understanding of since the civil rights, women and queer people have been getting erased from the movement, you know, um, Bayard Rustin, you know, was like an architect of, um, of, you know, um, the huge civil rights movement and, and, um, and erased from it. And so, because he was gay. And so like, if we want to do differently, we, we can't continue to, um, like try to basically, um, get us out of our situation without, uh, and then what I see so often is it's like cutting the ladder that we climbed up yeah. on. It's like, how do we ensure that not only are we building a better world for ourselves, but everyone else. And so like another thing we've been working on lately is our disability justice lens and like, okay, so if we're saying we're intersectional, how are we also, um, holding like a disability justice lens and what are the things that we don't know and what are the things, you know, even uh, now, um, I think um, being a black queer fan, like a lot of, uh, oftentimes, um, it's like people are like, oh, you should, the, the people closest to the problem or the closest to the solution. But we also, um, even myself, I have to also look at, okay, um, just because I have these various um, marginalized identities it doesn't mean that I can speak for or understand any sort of experience that isn't my own, right. you know? And so still realizing and, and having the humility to be like, no, we need to go back and ask the community. And, and even now, like being um, most of our org is um, millennials. And so it's like, okay, um, as the gap between us and the youth gets wider, we're like, okay, so now we have to uh, realize now, like, the adultism and, like, how are we perpetuating yeah. that? And so... I, I think about that for myself as, like, an adult trans person. So much of the anti-trans policy just targets kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't have that experience. Yeah. And I, you know, even my own experience of being a kid is very different because it was, it was a while back. It wasn't the experience they're having now. Yeah it's something where I kind of have to recognize, like I have to listen and I have to learn. I can't just come in and say, well, okay, I'm trans. I know all about this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, um, I think that's uh, another um, important part in, in this work is just like having the humility to always be um, learning and always, um, and, and not like, you know, I've been doing this for over a decade now, um, being an organizer and activist and, um, and there's still a lot I don't know, and, and there's still, um, there's always um, a moment for humility. Yeah. Um, well, I'm curious about your path over that decade. You were in Seattle, you were organizing at a community college. How did you get to Phoenix and get into organizing here? Yeah, so um, I think um, my uh, experiences and identities uh kind of posed me to to be interested and involved um but I think uh my trajectory a lot of it came through um through school so you know sense. um initially first getting involved was at community college um when uh, I then transferred to um University of Washington where I did my bachelor's in environmental science and during that time I got involved in the fossil fuel divestment movement. Um, also, um, Shell made the uh, <laughs> the wrong move to dock their Arctic 
thriller um, in Seattle, and you know Seattle's a very environmentally friendly city. <laughs> so we um, organized at the scale that like um, was that like the WTO WTO protest, which has also happened in Seattle, and we yeah. I, I got to work with folks that were involved in that and learn from on like how to do basically citywide mobilizations to like uh direct action to to go against that yeah. um and i definitely um have uh a love and a passion for direct action um especially uh climate direct action um but uh it was you know um for me i think getting involved in the black lives matter movement was came like the night of darren wilson's non-indictment um darren wilson was a murderer of uh, mike brown um and i was involved prior to that but it was just like oh that's just such a terrible thing to happen like what do we do but the night of darren wilson's non-indictment kind of changed everything i remember um i was at the university of washington studying and um we heard about it, and I went to um, uh, one of my study places. Was um, something that was also very formative for me was um, was uh, at this multicultural center, the LSAMP office, and it was a bunch of other, um, a lot of like other African um, folks in STEM um, in this program. And so I ran in there. We're supposed to be studying biology, and I'm like, "Did you guys hear what happened? We have to go to the streets now." And they're like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like. I'm sure other people are going to be there, but we just we have to go outside now. And so I dragged them from their books, and we ran outside, and we got to the streets in Capitol Hill, and there was thousands of people there, and we just uh, we marched like all night. It was um, it was um, it was amazing. And then I think uh, I think I marched every single day for like weeks after, and um, that was kind of my um, yeah. It was. It was the kind of the the spirit of the age at the time, and um, I, I think I've learned so much since then. Um, and and it was interesting in the last like the twenty twenty movement, having yeah. been in a different position now because during then I was like, we got to go in the streets every single night. But years later, I found out, you know, we increased the police budget because we were marching every night. Oh gosh. And we had, uh, you know, more overtime for the police and, and learned about, you know, Frederick Douglass says power concedes nothing without a demand and really Mm. realizing like, okay, yes, we want justice for black lives, but that's not a tangible demand that can be implemented. Like what are, how can you articulate the actual things that you're asking for? for you know this this came years later but mm-hmm. that was that was my uh my kind of um yeah just kind of jumped head first in and um uh both organized on the community level in seattle as well as on the campus led level um in 2015 i worked with um black organizers on the campus to hold like the largest walkout university of washington since the 1960s and we did have demands on every college level throughout the university and we were able to move millions of dollars into racial equity and make some tangible changes um and then from there um i guess another one of my actions that was one of my favorite was uh during that march we walked past Creek Row and we got called like the monkeys and inwards and stuff. And there was a moment because I was in the front of the march and there was I don't know how many you know hundreds if not thousands behind me and uh, 
And I want to beat up that frat boy right there. <laughs> and uh, my partner at the time was like, do you see you're a leader right now? And if you do that, you're going to get charged with instigating a riot. And also, like, that's not good <laughs> to, you know, like, people are looking up to you. Like, right yeah. now, we're headed to the um, the president's office, and we're going to drop this off, and we'll come back for those frat boys later. <laughs> and so um, we did. We left um, LMP. I was like, okay, you know, um, I'm just going to uh, – because I knew if the way I reacted, because so many people were, were following me, that I would not only be held responsible, but I, people could get hurt. So um, we had to let it be, um, which was hard at the time. But um, we marched to the president's office and we finished the what we intended to do that day. And I think for me that was also um, a lesson in not reacting and that's that's something i'm still learning today but um you know like uh responding versus reacting yeah you know um because this racist homophobic sexist system will have you reacting all the time there's there's an abundance to react to yeah. but it's like you can't really strategically when you react you're not being strategic you're you're being emotional you're being short-sighted you're being guided by you know uh endorphins basically you know and so it's like if we want to move strategically if we really want to win we, we have to be we have to think it through and so um what i really appreciated about that action was um that we did that and then um we tried to report them um they uh <laughs> i will never forget they had this huge um poster of like all the frat boys they're all in the same polo they all have the same haircut and they're like which one did it and so uh we actually um because you know like uh as we can expect uh institutions wouldn't deliver justice we decided to um deliver justice ourselves and we connected with a lot of people who had been wronged there um you know queer people who have been locked out dark-skinned people who were told they're too dark but the light-skinned one can come in um God. girls who had been raped and and date rape there we brought them all together and we were like okay we need to like the greek row has become a cesspit at university of washington and so we were like we're gonna hold a check your privilege party <laughs> and so there's like um kind of a strip of grass in between uh, the roads on Greek Row. And so we went, and it was like one of the first actions I got a permit to because I know these people have too many lawyers oh, yeah. to just take the, <laughs> take up their lawn without a permit. So we did that, and there was so many, like, barriers that they tried to stop us and that's when i learned how powerful and hegemonic and white supremacist patriarchal the fraternity and sorority systems were in so many different ways just like how like at at least at the university of washington the sororities they had to have a house mom otherwise it'd be considered a brothel oh, but God, mean, yeah. while the fraternities they don't have no no man in there like making sure they don't rape right. girls so um but then even like uh i think it's like don't quote me but i think it's like around like 60 percent of people in government and 80 percent of fortune 500 um companies um are alums of fraternities oh, wow. and so when we started to even try to get the permit and stuff we had like homeland security call us up which i'm like i know you probably part of this fraternity <laughs> and telling us like we're not gonna protect you so you're on your own oh, <laughs> and God. like and this is after we told them we were getting death threats and like that's your response like you're on your wow. own oh okay i was like well you know what 
Yeah, at the police, we don't, we didn't want your support anyways. We never expected it, mm-hmm. and we created our own security, which is something you know. From then on, I've realized we have to do. You know, like if you really are an abolitionist, like that means that you can't expect the state to ever protect you. But what was beautiful about the event, despite the hate and like mobs of trolls that tried to stop us, mostly virtually, and um, I should have. Uh, taken the forewarning and seen all the trolls that came from Arizona taking that as if you I shouldn't have <laughs> came here but I didn't um, but anyways we, we held the event anyways and we even got like notification from Southern Poverty Law that the clan from Idaho was coming and like oh just like they really tried to scare us away from this event yeah. in um, all sorts of ways but we held the event anyways we held uh, really a party like we had a whole like sound system a stage and between like dope like woke rappers and people coming and telling their stories of what happened we did it differently than a protest which i think also made people more receptive and so you have fraternities and sororities coming here like they were unsure like are you guys coming to fight us or what are you doing and then they come and they sat and they listened and they listened the whole time and we had you know the black student union and mecha and a bunch of other like queer groups and the black sororities and fraternities they all came together and really we kind of um for me that was like a beautiful moment of of cultural change and after that event not only did i have so many of the people who who had threatened to kill me apologize and said that their their heart was changed after that but also what came of that was like the fraternities they started um holding uh as part of their like uh welcome week or like the initiation whatever you call it um (laughs) they now are teaching about rape culture and about um uh whiteness and um white privilege and um they created like a diversity council which you know i have my i have my thoughts about that but (laughs) you know they 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 started it and so i I, for me that was like a great example of like cultural change which happens you know if if i had i just reacted and you know cussed them out and kept it pushing like that really wouldn't have made it but but that being said that that work, it, it takes time and it also um, takes the ability um, and, you know, like there's there's a, there's a time and a place for it, I guess I'd say. Um, Something I've seen in Seattle is that there's this, like you're talking about, there's a whole tradition of organizing that something I noticed in 2020 was like that Seattle autonomous zone <laughs> that they yeah. formed, felt very Occupy. Uh, I don't think, Arizona really feels the same way. Not at um, all. <laughs> did you, when you came to Arizona, did you notice a pretty big contrast right away? Yeah, definitely. So I came out here to start my PhD at ASU, and um, I knew, like, I had heard about Jar Pyle. I knew it was a red state, but I, I guess I didn't understand to the extent of. And yeah. for me, I have this running joke that Arizona is a sunken place because not only is it a conservative state, but you also have a lot of people of color who have, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, who, you know, need to be woken up with from the teacup. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they're really in the sunken place. And so so I, uh, with three others, co-founded BLM Phoenix Metro in 2017, um, a year after I had come here. And, you know, um, there's been a lot of lessons, and, you know, I kind of still go 
back and forth because um, when we first came out, uh, you know, two of us coming from Seattle, um, being the type of activists that we were, we were way too radical. And, like, the community was not messing with it. They are like, ah, ah, they're trying to get us arrested. You know, yeah, they weren't feeling it. And so we had to adjust and reevaluate and learn, like, you know, there's a cultural context in, in every city, and what works in Seattle is not going to work in, in Arizona. Um, and, and so we had to... Um, you know, we strategize and, and change the way that we were going about it to meet people where they're at. Because at the end of the day, it's like if we want to be a community org, then we have to meet them where they're at, not be like, oh, yeah. like, you know, this is what we should be doing. So that's, yeah, there's there's a few um, rebranding and restructuring that we've had to do and we continue to do to continue to try to meet us where we're at in the time. And, you know, there's been a lot of shifts even since yeah. I came in 2016 to now. I think there's been such, in the last two years, such an influx of new people. So even now, like the black community, I think uh, there's just so many transplants that uh, back then it was really a thing about, like, making it safe and, like, meeting people where they're at. And now for us it's, like, a lot about building community because there's so yeah. many transplants and, like, people looking for for political homes and stuff um so yeah you mentioned you came here for your phd was that also environmental science sustainability okay um what's yeah. your focus within that field so uh my dissertation i just finished in may um oh I, congratulations thanks um so my dissertation was on uh decolonization in response to climate change um and basically drawing the connections between climate change and colonialism. And uh, and while um, on one hand, there's the material need, you know, like climate and colonial reparations to address, you know, the divide between the first world and the third world was created through colonialism and that really the only way to move forward with climate justice is, is to change that. But before we can even get there, and, and what really drew me to how I got here in the first place was, like, looking at, like, climate change is getting worse and no one's doing anything about it. So what's wrong with our society and what prevents us from addressing oh, right, it? Yeah. And that's where I got to colonialism and found out, like, how, um, you know, Western society, um, and, and not just the United States, but the United States is the worst, um, in terms of, like, the cognitive dissidence, you know, and even, like, talking about, like, oh, we are a nation of immigrants. No, we're not. Like, this is a stolen country. Like, you know, um, and even now with, like, things like in Arizona, how they banned ethnic studies, and now they're trying to basically ban history. There's just so much cognitive dissidence, and so I was like, if we can't even look up where we came from, how can we go forward? The only way we can go forward if we can't look at where we come from is the continuation of the colonial narrative. So what I focused on was really the what I consider the societal illness that prevents us from addressing climate change. And um, I termed it the pathology of modernity. And it's really like... Um, modernity and like how modernity was created through colonialism and slavery and, and genocide and so there are traits that was learned during there such as exploitation consumerism control domination cognitive dissidence these and other traits uh, make up the pathology of modernity and not only do they prevent us from 
addressing climate change. They prevent us from caring about anyone other than ourselves. The pathology of modernity was very apparent during COVID and why the United States fared off the worst with COVID despite us being the richest. We don't care about anyone but ourselves. And this was learned from colonialism. And until we really look at the the embedded, like even... Um, People like to call about like, oh, the Constitution, our foundations, our foundations are rooted in genocide and colonialism and slavery. And so in order for us to go do anything differently, we need to have a reckoning. And so um, that's kind of where I come when we talk about like cultural change work. That's part of the um, work that I'm um, interested in doing. And I think that it does mean like we do need to have a reckoning and we're starting to see in some places like Canada is doing the truth and reconciliation I think that's a good first step I think one of my issues with when they did it in South Africa was rec truth and reconciliation is an important force first step and I think that it can help to heal the trauma and peel back the layers of cognitive dissidence that um, are a able to continue because of the lies that we continue to tell like the story of thanksgiving is a great example and then we want to say we're oh this is just about gratitude like what if the foundation of your gratitude is on genocide then like we're not really gonna be do anything differently and so um but i also think the next step after truth and reconciliation is reparations. And if we don't have a material change to change the conditions of those of us who are still suffering from colonialism, then we're not going to get any different outcomes like we've seen in South Africa. What you were saying in terms of like, why aren't people taking action about climate change is something I've, I've wondered about a lot living in Phoenix mm -hmm. where there's so many like really simple climate change mitigation strategies that are basically just things that would make living in Phoenix nicer immediately. And it's difficult to look at that and think, but why aren't we just, why don't we have more solar in, in Arizona, right? Questions like that, that occur to me. And your analysis of it makes a lot of sense. That people aren't taking action that would benefit them because of this cognitive dissonance that you're talking about. I know ASU has a lot of different programs around like, urban development research in terms of climate change and all of that. Did you feel like ASU was a good institution to study the things you wanted to study? Um, not really. I mean, there's a lot of gaslighting and like, mm. uh, just denial of realities, for example, for example, um, I got my PhD in the school of sustainability school of sustainability. One of our main funders is the Walmart family. And you know, like, it's crazy when you think about, like, okay, it's one thing, you know, like, uh, I get it, they're a huge funder, they're here in Arizona, okay, take their money, but, um, okay, put their name on our school, <laughs> but, but, you know, now you can see the, the Walton Global Institute of Sustainability, you know, mm -hmm. but it changes what we're allowed to talk about and they don't and and when you bring it up you get gaslit but we are talking about sustainability but we're we're talking about recycling and composting and 
we're not talking about capitalism and the fact that <laughs> the way that and consumerism and the fact that yeah. the way that we consume as Americans would take four and a half Earths uh, if everyone was to live like us. And so it is quite literally impossible for the global south to develop, uh, like they like to say, because we're taking all the resources. And so but we can't have that conversation because our funding is rooted in the consumerism that we're speaking out against. Yeah. And so um and so that changed even what they're they're willing to talk about. That changed the possibility of what we're willing to look at. Um, I came into this work, you know, my my undergraduate was in the, the physical sciences and I switched to the social sciences because I realized we have all the research and technology we need to transition. We've had it since before. I remember in 2012, a paper came out in Sci Scientific American that talked about um, the technology we would need that we currently had to go 100% renewable by 2030. What is missing is the political and social will, and that is yeah. because in order to change and to do differently, then we would need to um, really um, address capitalism, address consumerism, address colonialism, and the global divide between you know the the developing world and and the developed world which you know these are colonial terms but the, the the chasm between the global north and south was created through colonialism and now we have stuff like sustainable development where they're like how can we help africa but we're not even talking about how africa got there in the first place oh, right, yeah. you know and and so i think that it's missing a lot um but uh, the kudos I'll give to ASU um, uh, is that while, you know, I didn't really get much at all out of the classes because we weren't um, having critical conversations in sustain sustainability, they are very much like um, have this paternalistic view uh that, that i now think you know i used to have it too but now i think is naive this belief that you can save the world when one like individuals aren't going to save shit but um, <laughs> but that also like the um the reality is that you know it's going to take a change in collective consciousness yeah. and we're not having the deeper conversations about the system change that needs to happen because yes your little solar panel you made out of pop cans is cute but however like <laughs> when we're talking about the change that's needed we are talking about a need to restructure society and so it's like we can't expect a different outcome until we have this uh this a change um, in societal consciousness and until we basically heal from the pathology of modernity we're going to continue to exploit extract steal um you know just like the whole colonial paradigm well when you think about the collective change you want to be involved in now that you're done with your phd program at asu are you interested in staying in arizona to do that work or would you go somewhere else um I, uh, uh, there's a few things. Um, I, I plan to stay here, um, as long as it takes to uh, really just, um, stabilize my organization and have an appropriate, um, transition because it's important to me that the organization continues to run without me because it, it was never about me. It's really about, um, community and about system change. And so, like, yeah. it's important that, um, the institution that we're building differently continues to exist so that we can continue to change the culture here. I will say that um, 
Arizona's been a terrible place and has, you know, um, broken my spirit in some ways. And I don't think that I could never stay here forever. In addition to that, while I'm still continuing to um, fight against this, um, I had helped also co-found a Phoenix Environmental Justice Coalition. And we're actually even giving a talk at the big race for it conference happening in November um, about this topic um, about the water. I also struggle with the fact that, you know, as I've gotten older and also um, begin to, like, understand, you know, like it takes uh, system change, not climate change. It's, it takes collective. It's not individuals who can stop things. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of a water crisis, and if we don't do something differently in the next two years, we're not really going to have water here. Yeah. And so it's, you know, Phoenix is kind of like a hot potato, like the market <laughs> right now, like the housing market, it's really hot, but I'm like, do people understand we don't have water? Like, we don't even have till 2030 if we continue business as usual. And, you know, you can look at Lake Mead and look at the water levels, and I can't tell you the anxiety it gives me. And and we continue to build. Phoenix is one of the fastest-growing cities, and so uh, the arrogance there is, um, is deafening. Um, and like I said, while I'm here, I'm going to try to change it. But I also know I have to leave soon because I don't <laughs> think there's, I don't know how much longer there's going to be water, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, oh my God, now I'm just anxious. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually what people say after I talk about my research. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for being on this podcast with me. Um, Wait, can, can we end on a positive note? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I think that, um, yeah, these issues are heavy and I try to, you know, um, not get burdened by them. But I I also think that it's important to uh, recognize that um, there is a lot of cultural change happening here. um, And I think that it's exciting to see. um, and, And I think that one of the things we see, you know, is the fact that even like when BLM first started, we were one of the only um, black, queer, femme-led abolitionist organizations. To my knowledge, the only in Phoenix when we started in 2017. Mm-hmm. And now there's like four or five different ones. And so that's culture change right there. Yeah. You know, and understanding like even if we survive or not survive, it's an understanding that like even our time here has made a difference to allow for for another world, like the Zapatista said, uh, another yeah. world is possible. Like, we are starting to create, you know, who would ever think in the red state of Arizona, we're starting to build, like, havens for black queer abolitionists. Like, I wouldn't think <laughs> that before I came here, yeah. you know? And so... While I think that, you know, Arizona is is a tough place to be, I sometimes I'm like, you know, we got like scorpions and rattlesnakes and even the vegetation will (laughs) hurt you like uh, the cactuses. But at the same time, I think there's um, what I've learned in my time here is like there's a certain level of resilience here. And so while, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the water in the future, I I believe that... um, Black and indigenous and queer folks will continue to survive and thrive because of our resilience and because of the resilience um, of this land. And so I think that's something that that keeps me going and realizing that 
with a lot of this work, you know, when you are doing culture change work, you usually are often, you know, um, think about Galileo and, and, oh, yeah. and talking about like, you know, that the earth is, is, is round and it doesn't, you know, like not everything revolves around it. Um, and you know, uh, who's killed, but at the same time, like, you know, uh, and it, it, it can be isolating to be to be on the edge of culture change, but at the same time, what I think about is like, you know, we're planting trees that we might not ever get to sit under the shade of, but we can rest easy knowing that, you know, for the next generation, it's going to be better. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much to Zara again for taking the time to talk with me on the Arizona Equals Conversation. We have new episodes with queer people telling their stories that come out every week, every Wednesday morning. I'd love to talk with you. So check out our archive online at equalityarizona.org stories and use the form at the bottom of that page to sign up to be a guest on a future episode of the podcast. If you're not already subscribed to the show in a podcast player, I'd really encourage you to do that. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really any platform. And if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Those really help us to get to a wider audience. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you again next week.